0: Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Colby Rasavong, who is the former CDC at Audrey in Nashville, Tennessee, and is going to be the new executive chef at Bad Idea, which is a forthcoming restaurant, with him and Alex Birch, who's a sommelier in the Nashville area. He's opening a restaurant, and Colby's going to be running the kitchen and the food side of the program. Uh, Colby also has a passion project that he works on, too, as well, called Som. It's kind of his interpretation of Laotian cuisine and kind of stuff that he's learned over his career too as well. He currently has a residency pop-up in New York City, I think running all the way up until March. So if you're in New York City, you can check out his pop-up. It's Full Grace's Laundromat, and you can go to their Instagram page and reserve tickets um, for his pop-up through there. Or you can check out his uh, Instagram, too, as well. But I wanted to have Colby on just because he's kind of been a mainstay in the Nashville uh, food scene for a number of years. He spent almost a decade of his career in Nashville, So he's seen a lot of the changes that the food scene's gone through as new restaurants have opened and people have moved to different concepts and stuff like that too. So he spent a good chunk of that in the world of Sean Brock, working at Husk in Nashville, the McCrady's in South Carolina, and then also obviously at Audrey for the past couple of years Was part of the opening team um, with the restaurant there and has been there for two years, but has recently just departed and uh, is working on his pop-up and everything in New York. And then we'll be running the kitchen and Bad Ideas once it opens next year, kind of probably late spring, early summer, 2023. You can follow him on Instagram. Uh, It's at Colby Rasavon. So C-O-L-B-Y-R-A-S-A-V-O-N-G. You can also follow his uh, pop-up Psalm. It's at SOM, S-A-A-M underscore Nashville. And then also the new restaurant that he'll be running, Bad Idea, which is at Bad Idea Nashville. So We talk about his career, how he wound up where he's wound up, you know, time working in New York too as well, and then kind of what the plans are for Bad Idea food-wise and pairing it with the wine that Alex will be coming up with and all that stuff too. So it sounds like a really cool concept and that's kind of when I was reading about it, I was super excited about it. Uh, it's something unique that doesn't really exist in Nashville and so I definitely wanted to have them on to chat about it and, and everything. So we'll be looking forward to trying that out sometime next year once it opens. But you can follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. Uh, we're on all the other social medias, either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. Uh, we have different profiles for everybody who's been on the podcast. Any updates since they've been on, we put up there different food photos, contact information, all that stuff. Uh, You can write in questions, comments, feedback, either through the contact portal on the website there, or directly you can email us spoonmob at yahoo.com. And also make sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform you're using, just click the follow button. Um, That way all the new episodes hit your feed as soon as they come out. We're back to just the Thursday release schedule. We were trying to do two episodes a week in December, but one week, I think we had a little bit of a delay with the editing process. And then this past week, I wound up uh, getting sick over Christmas. So was not able to do the necessary things needed to get this episode out on Tuesday. So we're back to the Thursdays. 1am is our release time, and then everything hits YouTube a week later. So if that's your preferred platform to use, you can check us out there and subscribe to our YouTube channel. But Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Colby Rasavong, the founder of SOM, which is currently running a residency in New York, and the executive chef of the forthcoming Bad Idea restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I think you're in New York right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I am. You've been working previously at Audrey, which is Sean Brock's uh, restaurant in Nashville. I mean, you've spent a majority of your career in Nashville. But you're moving on to a different thing, which sounds super exciting uh, with bad idea that I want to kind of get into here, as well as kind of your pop-up and residency that you got coming up too. So before we get to all that, I always like to start at the beginning. How did you first get involved with cooking? Because, you know, you're from Alabama, but I think you lived in North Carolina for a while, then you lived in Murfreesboro. So how did you fall into cooking and working in kitchens?
1: I kind of spent the majority of my childhood growing up in my family's restaurants in North Carolina. The one thing that I think all of my parents like told me to not do, like family said, don't get into this industry, it's not worth it. As a kid growing up, watching everybody work so hard for such a sort reward, you know, I also, cooking probably wasn't going to be a thing I was going to do. Um, and it wasn't until high school when I got thrown into a culinary arts class. Up until this point, so I was maybe 16 at the time. I've had a very little exposure to American food. The first thing we did on day one was biscuits. And I've never had a homemade biscuit 16 years of my life at that point. And I was so surprised and shocked that there were other types of food and cuisines. You know, as a kid, I think I knew there were other types of food, but I wasn't as exposed to them as I am now. And it was such a huge learning curve, it sparked this curiosity with cooking. And it's kind of straightened our path ever since.
0: So did you only work in your family's restaurants up through high school and everything?
1: Yeah, working in my family's restaurants that happened until I was about 13. I moved to Murfreesboro through high school, had a couple of different random jobs, worked at a Wendy's to pay for my first car. It wasn't until I graduated high school that I decided I was going to go to the Nashville Art Institute for college. And a year in, I landed a job with Sean at CUS for the Nashville opening almost 10 years later. I've kind of had an on and off
0: career with them. Did you complete culinary school or were you like a year or two in and then decided this isn't for me? Like, I don't really need this.
1: I was about a year in when I made the decision to drop out and kind of focus on just working inside of the restaurants, learning uh, naturally. Culinary school is great, but it turns out sitting in a classroom is not easy for me. Reading through books and having people talk to me is not the way I
0: learn. You've worked in a bunch of different restaurants with a bunch of different people. If someone asked you, hey, I want to become a professional chef one day, open my own restaurant, do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? Yeah, I would tell them,
1: you know, everything is based on your current situation and how much you're willing to put into it. If you're somebody who's fresh, who's never picked up a knife, you know, looking just for the basics has the means to go to school. That's definitely a great way to go. There's so many networking that you can get access to by just being in a culinary school, right? But if you're somebody who is maybe not so much financially equipped to take on such a huge uh, debt and loan, then, you know, maybe start browsing YouTube. You know, there's so many great ventures on the internet now that You can learn everything, anything you want to know. The internet has become such a large part of this industry in the way that I think. You know, I'm able to reference, you know, what people are doing in Paris or Japan just by simply getting onto the internet, and it kind of helps me grow exponentially because opening up a whole new world. And I think that's the same with you know individuals who just want to learn how to cook a pot of rice. So you know, cooking school is. but I think there are definitely other options.
0: Why did you decide on the Nashville Culinary Institute in the sense that you have family in North Carolina, Johnson and Wales is over there, obviously, you know, CIA, but that's super expensive too as well, like you kind of touched on, but there's all these different culinary schools. So why did you decide to stay local? Was it just family was there and it was affordable or...
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, my family was close. The tuition with Tennessee, you know, there's a lot of uh, grants for people that live inside the state. It was something that was a little more affordable for us at the time. There
0: weren't many other options. So how did you wind up at Husk on the opening team there with the Nashville restaurant? Because you're in culinary school. So did you hear about the restaurant and just applied? Or did somebody reach out and was like, hey, you know, this place is looking for people they're going to open soon?
1: I was um, working part time at a restaurant in Nashville called Cane Prime the was a steakhouse. Doing my externship there, I was able to get a part-time job. I was doing that during culinary school. And one of the line cooks at the time mentioned to me, like, hey, have you heard of this guy, Sean Brock? He's coming to town. Probably going to shake up, open up a restaurant. Everybody's going to work there. You should think about working there. And with little research, I tried reaching out to him and the website was barely up. There was no, like, email to contact anybody. There was, there was so much mystery of, like, what was happening with this space. So I just ended up reaching out to him on social media. And, you know, a few weeks later, I send back an email, I send him an email and, like, Everything just goes dead silent. I don't hear from them for about a year. Fresh out of culinary school, probably definitely not enough experience. So I just let it go. Continue this job. A year later, I get an email saying, hey, we have to talk to you. We're finally open. Went in for an interview.
0: Who was all there when you started? I think Brian Baxter was the CDC at the time, right? He's been on this podcast before. So that network has exploded from people that have worked at Sean Brock restaurants. And we'll probably get into this a little bit more. But all these people, you know, you look at Thomas Keller, you look at Noma, Rene Redzepi, you look at all these chefs, kind of this tree that branches out to all these people that wind up opening their own restaurants. So did you kind of know that going in, everything you had done in South Carolina and everything, like this is probably going to be really good for my career, or was it just it's a new place and I want to learn and just kind of see what they're doing and go from there?
1: No, at the time I was I was so naive. I was thinking so small, you know, like this restaurant's going to be one of the biggest in Nashville. That's cool. That'd be exciting to work at, you know, with no idea of like what he'd done truly in South Carolina or what he'd been able to do in the entire quarantine. I was just trying to get another job. I was a little burnt
0: out at the other one. Tired of cooking steaks all day. <laughs> Yeah,
1: did not expect the whirlwinds of a world I would get myself into. Brian was there. He was on the opening team. He was actually the executive studio chef at the time. Morgan McGrone was a, a chef the chef of the team. Man, there were so many great people there. Brian Lee, Dower Ellis, Brad Horton, Nate Leonard, Katie cost Just some real cooks. Yeah, it's hard to find those kind of people these days. Put in those long hours. We shouldn't have to anymore, but man, there were just some straight animals, dogs in that kitchen.
0: If you have one, give me your best Brian Baxter story from your time working with him.
1: You know, when I think of Brian, I think of such a great leader and such a great friend. We've had so many great nights out dancing together um, and just being individuals as opposed to, you know, having that strict, my boss working for him attitude. I remember there was a time when it was my last day, I was about to move to Charleston to work at McCready's and he was like, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to show you kind of like the real lifestyle you should be living in Charleston, which included getting me absolutely blacked out drunk and letting me throw up and sleep in my own vomit and then picking me up the next morning and dragging me to work to work my final shift. That's Brian Baxter.
0: <laughs> Did you say dancing
1: in there? Yeah, we used to go out uh, to just on some five spots. Every Monday, um, it was $5 to get in and play an old school Motown music. Uh, we used to just cut the rugs.
0: So like you mentioned, you eventually wind up moving to South Carolina, working at McCready's. How did that opportunity come about? Did they have just kind of this internal network where it was, hey, if you ever want to try something different, we have these other restaurants that you could kind of move to if you're up for, you know, relocating? Or how did that all kind of materialize? Because you were at Husk for like two years or so before that, right?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> by this point, you know I've, I've kind of come to know, you know, Sean and you know what he was capable of, and know the food scene a little more. Talk to Sean one day. I was like, Hey, you know, I think this is the end for me here at Hus. You know, I think I've come to see and do as much as I can. At this point, and there are other opportunities in the world that I want to take. You know, he just said straightforward, what about Charleston? He thought about McCready and time again, no, you know, looking to experience another chef, another world and trying to expand my outreach. But the more I kept thinking about it, McCready is one of the best restaurants in the country. Why not move there, experience the other side of Sean? Husk and McCready is a way too different style of cooking and thinking. Even geographically, that was, I think, such a great move on my part as well. It allowed me to grow within this company and also as the chef that I wanted to be.
0: What's the biggest difference between the two restaurants? Aside from, obviously, styles, you know, McCready is more of a tasting menu restaurant versus Husk, which is, you know, a la carte and stuff like that. But what was kind of the biggest difference that you noticed almost right away between cooking in both places?
1: You know, geographically, you know, in Nashville, Husk was focusing on, you know, Middle Tennessee. You know, the products and ingredients are different, whereas Charleston was on the coast. So you're seeing more fish or islands, heirloom varietals being grown um, there. And then the techniques that are being applied are just way more advanced. Husk, we were maybe buying misos, like really great misos from uh, Momofuku Group when they had those coming out. But, you know, in Charleston, they're making their own misos.
0: Were there any notable differences between the food scenes in the cities at that time when you're there? I don't think Nashville was quite as established maybe at that time. It was kind of on the come up. And then Charleston's, you know, this Southern Mecca almost. Were there any drastic differences?
1: So drastic. I mean, Nashville still is, you know, with all the great chefs that have moved to town, it's still a very called out steak on a plate with a lot of mashed potatoes, anything less than that. And you're going to get some fight back from the guests. Whereas Charleston, you know, was it's a lighter style of eating. You know, you're eating more seafood, more vegetables and just more, everything was a lot more vibrant. You know, things weren't really cooked down as you would think of Southern
0: food. Were you on the tasting side of McCready's or were you on kind of the other side?
1: Uh, I got to do it all. So, you know, when I moved there, and after it was 2015, I believe, it was the original McCready's. We were doing both. A, you had an a la carte option and a tasting menu option, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life working in that kitchen is to be able to execute an a la carte menu next to a tasting menu because you're cooking for you know, 150 guests a night. You don't know who's going to order what. You know, you can have a table that wants a la carte and try to taste it with three tables that want tasting menu or it even have to the same table a lot of curveballs and guesses, but then I believe it was 2016 when they made the decision to turn McCready's into two separate restaurants. And, you know, while we were waiting for the tasting menu to open, you know, I spent a little time helping them get ready to go for the
0: tavern. When you're in that situation where you're juggling an a la carte menu and a tasting menu simultaneously every night, what is like the one thing on the menu that you're like, please don't order that one thing? long prep time or you know you have to pay a lot of attention to it and you got this other stuff going on. Like what's that one thing that you were just like, please don't order that?
1: There was this one salad, Sean being Sean and mccready's being the restaurant that it was never like a like a salad that you just kind of toss everything in a bowl and dress and put it on a plate. We had this one salad at the time that I've had I could have sworn it was fifty touches. <laughs> and you know you're touching this plate fifty times for one plate and you're doing two of them for a the tasting menu that are half size and then all of a sudden You have three, you know, a la carte size portions, followed by eight tasting menu portions, followed by another single a la carte portion. Oh my God, I have, you know, now 12 plates that I have to touch 50 times individually. As a normal human, like I just don't have that kind of speed, no one does.
0: I think after that, you kind of wind up moving out to California for a minute, Santa Barbara. Yeah, I spent a little time in California. You
1: know, the original chef um, that I worked for in Nashville Poor like, Sean, he was opening up a place in Santa Barbara, and I went out there to kind of check out the scene. I wasn't out there for too long, but it a good
0: time. Was it not something that you were really considering moving out there for, or was it just you wanted to scope it out and see if you kind of vibe with the area?
1: I moved out there. I was out there for, I think, about eight months, and then I got some really bad news. My aunt had come down with cancer, made the decision again to move back to the East Coast so I can be a little closer to home.
0: So when you move back to Nashville, you move back for family and everything. What kind of happens then? You wind up back at Husk, right?
1: Yeah. So California was actually right before McCready, before Charleston.
0: So you went to California, then to Charleston. And then from Charleston, you wind up in New York City?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was in Charleston, I met uh, my current fiance. McCready's Tasting Room had been open now for about a year. Starting to see that like there really wasn't any more room for growth. The Chef of Cuisine at the time had been working for Sean for eight, nine years at that time. The sous chef, four years. They didn't look like they had any plans to move anytime soon. And I felt that I was ready to kind of take a step forward. And, you know, I was talking to emily and you know she was feeling the same she'd been in charleston for a while and you know she was feeling homesick she's originally from new york um we made a decision again to kind of pick up everything and move to new york together
0: moving to new york had you been to new york prior to that i took one trip to new
1: york like a month before we actually moved
0: basically I'd never really been to new york for like any length of time or multiple visits or anything so it was pretty fresh for you right
1: Yeah, I took a trip. I was like, you know what? Let me take a trip to New York. I'll see what it's like. And if I like it, I'll move with you next month, right? I get to New York and the first night I'm here, I go and visit a friend, Hugo, who is the chef de cuisine at Rulo's If He was the CDC at Cosme had a sister restaurant in New York. I can't remember the name, but they were just newly opened. I went to go see him. He took care of me and had a great meal. But he was like, Hey, I'm going to go to this party tonight. Uh, EMP's having a party. Um, I'm like, Cool, let's go to the EMP party. He doesn't want to go to the EMP party in New York City, right? We go to this party. They just won the best new restaurant and they just shocked the robots on They're going to close down to renovation. And so somehow I ended up at their closing party in new york and like Cliff love is cj standing here on top of david's dancing everybody's just having a good time and it's all wild and crazy and like in that moment i was like no way i'm not moving to new york city
0: so when you get to new york how do you kind of decide where you want to work where you want to apply to because there's all these restaurants very rarely is any restaurant like no we can't use another person in our kitchen so what criteria did you use to kind of find your next opportunity
1: so I was really stubborn and, you know, I was looking for a sous chef position and, you know, I reached out to every large restaurant that I could think of. But in New York, is tough because we've never worked in a Mission Start restaurant. Probably not going to get a sous chef position. That was tough to kind of swallow. When I started looking for other positions now, I actually came across a guy who, his name was Brad Willett, who had a restaurant in Brooklyn, and he was friends with the old chef of cuisine that I worked for at McCready, Dan O'Hind. We started hanging out for a little bit. He just come work at the restaurant, so I joined the restaurant, too, chef.
0: But eventually, you wind up being an executive chef in New York, too, right? I think it was Little King?
1: Yeah, yeah. That came to a little bit later on. You know, I had a friend who was bartending at the restaurant and he was like hey you know they're looking for an executive chef you know to be the owners and so i did and i went and met with uh john and sam who were the owners did a tasting for them we kind of hit it off it took the job of the effect for wine bar uh, Little king and then i think it was six months after that they came and he said hey if you want to open another restaurant district do that as well and that ended up becoming fenelux uh belgian beer hall way out of my comfort zone you know I had no idea <laughs> any idea of like belgian cuisine or food and I kind of just did it for them, hoping that we could continue that relationship and maybe one day build another restaurant. Because inside of the space, there's a beautiful sack area that you know, I was hoping that could eventually become something similar to Blanca at the time.
0: So when you take on your first executive chef position, did you feel that you were ready to run a kitchen and everything like that? Or was it just kind of the opportunity presented itself? And it's like, well, I mean, obviously I got to take this.
1: Yeah, you know, the opportunity was there. You know, the eagerness was there, the excitement. Was I ready? Probably not. (laughs) I got thrown into a position that I definitely didn't know how to handle, not necessarily meaning I couldn't handle it. Very quickly found the way to make it happen, but you know, a little more guidance and a little more teaching probably would have been the best case scenario. But at that time, it wasn't really cooking what I would consider my food now. It was all my ideas on a plate.
0: What was kind of the biggest challenge that you faced? Was it the ordering system, balancing books?
1: Yeah. I mean, the hard part was just you know, defining my identity. It's hard to teach others. You don't even know what you want to teach through we cooking all this food. And like, I had all these ideas in my head, but I couldn't get them out to anybody else. You know, it was hard explaining like how I wanted something, I don't know, diced or pureed stuff. So, I was lacking a lot of confidence, which is a huge part in taking your first executive role. You, know, you need to be confident in your voice and the food that you're cooking.
0: For the tasting when you interviewed for the position, was it like a mystery basket or was it just, you know, cook us three courses, five courses, whatever you want? Do you remember what you cooked?
1: It was a very casual thing. You know, we were supposed to do something at the restaurant and I think they had a babysitter issue. So I ended up packing everything that I bought from the restaurant, and moving it to their house. But it was like uh, it ended up just being like a an entree, just roasted a chicken with like strawberries and uh sauce comedy very simple kind of the idea that I wanted for Little thing just very simple Parisian comfort food
0: when you help open Benelux to beer hall that style of cuisine is kind of Belgium Netherlands region that was your first time I'm assuming both cooking that style and then probably also trying to pair food with beer because the other place was a wine bar
1: Yeah, exactly. It was very casual. We wanted it to be be very simple. It was in a Bushwick. It's going to be such a huge attraction of tourists or people from the city coming to spend top dollar. It's a very local thing. We needed to be accepted by that neighborhood. They ended up becoming burgers, fries, there a couple of Belgian uh, dishes, but like nothing too too out of the box.
0: You know, obviously, you had up to that point been on the opening team at Husk, but this was also kind of the first restaurant opening that you were leading. So, what was the most challenging aspect of kind of running the show, but also opening a restaurant too as well?
1: That was probably one of the harder openings I've ever done because again, the inexperience of opening the place where you're the one who's put them on the answer. Cooking was easy, you know, putting together the numbers was easy, but, you know, it was the, how do we train a staff with nothing? My partners, John and Sam at the time, you know, had opened Little King, which is a very small wine bar and a team of like two people on the front of the house staff. But then Benelux became, you know, quickly a staff of 15 to 20 people in the front of the house, 12, 15 in the kitchen. You know, how do we train all these people to move in unison? None of us had done that before.
0: When you kind of look back on your time in New York... That first time, because obviously you're back there now for a little bit. Was it as difficult of an environment to cook in as you kind of expected?
1: No, I think it was right on par of what I expected. You know, I know being very naive and young, you know, I knew New York was tough. I knew if you really wanted to be somebody, you to spend just a little bit of time in New York to really understand the, you know, the work ethic, the energy and purpose of cooking. It's something special, you know. You don't see it kind of anywhere else in the world. California, Tennessee, and, you know, South Carolina. There's no work ethic like the ones here in New York.
0: What ultimately led to going back home to Nashville? John, Sam, and I starting to see that like what I envisioned
1: for the backspace and like a true destination restaurant wasn't going to happen. It kind of made me a little tense, regretful of the decisions. I guess starting to not feel it anymore. Sean all of a sudden reached out. Okay, you know, been thinking about you and wanted to see what your interests were. And then we had a conversation, what it would be, what it could be, and could turn that around.
0: When you're in New York, you kind of wanted to do almost like a chef's table at Brooklyn Fair. Like you wanted to have this backspace, this elevated restaurant back there. That was kind of what your goal was.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, at Little King, I was able to cook more vibrant and fresh with the markets, right? We were going to the market three days out of the week. We are changing the menu as much as we could. And then Ben allowed to casual, but I needed something to satisfy part of my brain. I needed the, the slower pace of a menu, the intensity and creativity of it all.
0: So when you're announced or, you know, you agree to become essentially the CDC at Audrey, you know, there's Sean Brock behemoth that's going to open and the plans kind of leak out. You know, there's going to be a ground floor restaurant and a tasty menu restaurant and all this other stuff that he's going to incorporate. Was that before or after the tornado ran through East Nashville?
1: The restaurant was announced before all of that.
0: And you agreed to join before the tornado decimated the area?
1: <laughs> I agreed to join the project in the summer of 2019. My first day back in Nashville, I flew down there the afternoon after the tornado.
0: But then like the pandemic happens like a week later.
1: My first official day with the company was March 15th, and that was the day that Sean texted advice.
0: With those two events happening kind of back to back, essentially, did you worry at all? Like, man, I don't know. This kind of seems like snake bitten. Like, this isn't going to open. Tornado. Then we got the pandemic. Or did you just think, you know, like most of us thought during that time, like the pandemic, a couple weeks, a month, or something, then we'll be right back to it.
1: I think that's definitely the side that we took. Who could have really like foreseen that the world would shut down? We tried to control everything that we could, and that you know that was the way that Sean led us. We're here in Nashville. This tornado just happened and ruined our community. You know we need to respond to that, and that was pick up the parts of their homes that weren't there anymore, uh, or what was left, and cooking food for the people that needed it. You know that was the mission. Okay, now that. Nashville's kind of subtle what is going on with the pandemic, and okay, we're gonna kind of ride this out, condense our team, and we're gonna continue to do what we can do and can, can control. And I don't think we ever actually thought about what Audrey was going to open.
0: You said you joined, you know, or at least agreed to join kind of the summer of 2019. Is it normal for a restaurant that's gonna be opening but doesn't really have an opening date to staff that far in advance, or was this kind of a special case because of the concept and how broad it was gonna be?
1: At the time, you know, when I joined on, there was uh, an estimated date. You know, we were supposed to originally open in the fall or winter of 2019. Delays happened and then, okay, we're going to open in the first quarter of 2020.
0: I would probably argue that Audrey was probably the most anticipated restaurant opening in probably the last three to five years. How much pressure did you feel from all the intrigue what is Sean Brock going to do? He says he's going to do this stuff. And it's you're the guy who's going to be running the day to day out of the, the first you know restaurant that opens. You know, obviously he opened, you know, the fast casual and did some stuff with Continental menu consulting. But this is like this giant deal. And you're the guy who's going to be running it. Like, how did that all kind of feel?
1: Tons of pressure. It was a lot. When I walked into the room. You know, we would do this thing where, you know, whenever somebody new joins the team as management, you know, you sit around the room and you introduce yourself and, you know, they introduce themselves to you and you kind of talk through and hear everybody's story, their past. So my first day at Walk-in, you know, there's GM at the time. You know, he'd worked at Massive Park, the AGM as well. The two pastry chefs, you know, all EMT vets. The guy who's running the research lab, you know, he worked at Noma, culinary director. He worked at Single Thread. I've worked with Sean. You know, my own space is in New York, but I've never worked at any three-star And restaurant. Now sitting there in a the room, twelve or fifteen stars, looking right back at me. Okay, I'm maybe not the most experienced as everybody else in my opinion, kind of outwork everybody. And that's what I have is, you know, my work ethic kind of used to get myself forward in my career.
0: You mentioned when you take your first executive chef job, that confidence plays a huge part. When you're in that room with all those talented individuals, it's pretty easy to doubt yourself and look around and go like, am I like the weak link in the chain? But you also have to remember that Sean asked you to move back here to run this restaurant. So obviously he sees something.
1: You're not wrong, you know, the doubt was there, confidence wasn't, should I be the one here in this position and should I be the one in this role? And it took a lot to be able to say, yeah, I was given, you know, this opportunity, given this position and role, like, I need to stop doubting myself and start believing that I can and will do it. And, you know, when that kind of started clicking for me is when I started pushing
0: What were you pushing? Were you pushing like kind of the boundaries of the cuisine that you guys were developing or, you know, the potential of the menu? Exactly.
1: You know, like we, you could say it was a little selfish, but like, you know, everybody else is kind of just cooking. And again, this is, you know, cooking in the pandemic for people who just need to eat. We we're cooking, like, consciously to be nutritious, but we we're also cooking for ourselves as well. You know, we we're pushing as much as we could do. You know, we weren't, weren't doing anything crazy, but how can we use the heart that's inside of Audrey to cook a meal for like, 400 people? So we were roasting whole racks of uh, pork loins and beef rib and things you wouldn't do necessarily since people who were getting free meals. Just really taking as far as we could.
0: Having worked in a Sean Brock restaurant up to that point, six years, seven years, something like that, do you ever worry that you'll start to mirror his style? Like you're trying to find your own voice, but you're also trying to execute his vision at the same time. So do you worry that at any point that you'll kind of lose maybe what makes your cuisine so special because you spent so long in that restaurant environment, in that group, essentially?
1: I don't actually fear it or worry about it. You know, I know it is part of my history. and I'm not trying to copy or replicate anything he does, but you know, there are certain techniques that are always going to be ingrained in my memory and my cooking. And that's only connected to memories.
0: Being in a state-of-the-art kitchen, I mean, there's a research and development lab, having all those toys at like your fingertip, like best stuff that you could have, is that hard to kind of stay within the framework of the cuisine in the sense that you could do basically anything? with the menu, anything with the dishes, but you have to kind of almost edit yourself down. I don't want to say focus necessarily, but when you have all that stuff to play with, you can kind of get lost in it.
1: Yeah, and you know, what people don't really understand is, you know, I think Audrey and June, though they are an Appalachian restaurant, Sean is, you know, Southern Chef, I don't think he truly has the desire to disable us just that created that space, you wanted to open up what things could be, you know, that's when you start saying, okay, there's all these things that we can do. How can we do that With a Southern ingredients and a Southern thought process?
0: When you're, you know, running the restaurant, you know, it's a destination restaurant, people come from all across the US to eat there, essentially, do you know, even with everything that's implemented, all the technology, all the great employee benefits, all that stuff, you know, you're not going to be there for seven, eight years? Or is it something that you go into, where you don't even think about that? Because I'm assuming like the next step for you at that time, you're like, eventually, you want to open your own restaurant.
1: Yeah, yeah. For me, you know, it was, there was definitely a five-year plan. It wasn't going to be anything more than that. Put my name out there and then see what was next. I never saw the longevity in it. It was never going to work out for me how stubborn I am.
0: I think you were one of like 10 chefs nominated for the Star Chefs Nashville Rising Star Award. When your name is on a list like that, do you see the other nine people as people you want to collaborate with? Or do you kind of use that list to measure yourself against what they're doing and like this is my graduating class almost like this is the people that i have to measure and i have to look towards and see okay they're doing that over there i need to use this to like push myself
1: two of the other chefs that were on that list were um brian lee with his um wife but the other one was brian Bax, you know guys that i both worked for in my young career and for me, it was such a huge moment in my life because I could almost finally, you know, stand side, shoulder to shoulder with these guys—not just be, you know, one step under them because I worked for them, finally on their levels. I never really felt the need to kind of look at what they're doing and, you know, compare myself to them. But it was such a great honor to be able to say
0: I'm on the same
1: platform as them.
0: What gave you the idea to start your pop-up, your passion project, Sam?
1: You know, I just left Audrey, and you know, was contemplating what was next, trying to define who I am and what I want to be. And you know, I kept feeling this urge to cook, the ocean food, but not in the sense, not in the normal sense that anybody else would. I feel there are a lot of great chefs in America that cook Laotian ocean food, and it's starting to gain the exposure that it needs and wants. You know, what I want for ocean food, but with my background and the way my brain works doesn't allow me to just cook dishes you know I wanted to cook something that felt more me more personal which meant cooking my family's food but in my own style so Sam just became something organic Of this is me creating what I am that food means I get to use the ingredients that I've been lucky enough to expose myself to my family has never heard of Satsuma's collard greens. You know, as weird that that is to say, you know, they don't eat this stuff. For me, you know, I've had 10 years of working and want to add that, contribute to
0: Laotian so is this cuisine kind of a, a blend of like almost family recipes, but then also just kind of stuff you've picked up along the way that you're interested in too as well? You're kind of merging them together to kind of, I don't want to say fusion because that's word gets thrown around too much, but it's kind of this blending of your past and family heritage and then also your career thus far.
1: I think I used to be very hard on myself when using the word fusion because of the, um, bad interpretations of it i think it's okay to talk about that word a little more now you know because of who we are as a country there are many generations of different ethnicities coming together and you know children are being born under multiple ethnicities now you know that is what american cuisine is it's not i don't, I don't think we can boil it down so simple as you know southern food just being fried chicken and collard greens and more like there are asian chefs in the south cooking what they know and who they are right it's the same story of pilgrimage you know like you know the first generation german-americans here were making sour corn in the appalachian mountain especially sauerkraut but with ingredients they have that's kind of where laotian food is now and the first generations like myself cooking this style of food but with ingredients that are only local and accessible here so that's becoming its own thing and that's fusion that's fusion and organic in organic and the right way
0: was Sam your first like official pop up that you ever? No,
1: you know I've done a few pop ups. I did a few pop ups in Charleston when I needed to raise some money to move to New York. Um, again, all things that weren't necessarily me or who I am now. You know, there were hot chicken pop ups because I was from Nashville. So there wasn't a hot chicken scene in Charleston, so it was pretty easy. Done a few other pop ups with Sean. Those were his things, but I think Sam was the first iteration. What?
0: I'm doing now. Have you ever had the chance to go to Laos?
1: Not yet. Not yet. You know, it's on the calendar for next year.
0: Are you going to different cities or different regions within the country or one specific place that you're looking to target?
1: You know, we're looking at uh B'Antoni, which is the capital. My grandmother lives right outside of the city. So that's
0: kinda of the first
1: area kinda
0: take. Is this something also, you know, your papa, Sam, are you going to do that or continue to kind of develop it on the side? Like, do you see this eventually becoming the restaurant that you do want to open? Spoiler, I mean, it's, it's been out there, but you're also going to be the executive chef of a restaurant in Nashville called Bad Idea, which is going to open, I think, sometime in 2023. So are you going to kind of do both, essentially? Not do both simultaneously, but still kind of develop some, while. Well, well, run bad idea in the kitchen.
1: Definitely. You know, Psalm is it, at this moment in time and is, isn't supposed to be a restaurant. You know, it's about learning about the cuisine that I want to cook, you know, diving back into the food that you know my mom, my aunt, my grandmother cooked. And so, yeah, I think the ocean cuisine is a very tricky one because recipes were never recorded. You could go ask my mom for food, how to make anything. She can't write it down for you. No one writes down anything her, right? So recipes are always translated from mouth to mouth to generation. So I, there's a lot of work to be done there trying to dig up information from her and try to figure out how to cook these things again. But uh, then, you know, it's like, what can I do? How can I add to it? Give a little bit of exposure with the platform that I have now to make it something a little more accepted and a little more casual, right?
0: It's wild when you look back to basically like our grandparents' generation and before that. They didn't write anything down. And it's crazy because you look through like history of all these different cultures and everything and they wrote everything down. Like, you know, the Egyptians wrote stuff on walls. These recipes are just passed down just verbally and you just learn by doing it. Nobody ever wrote it down until like now. It's wild. Like I mentioned, you know, you're going to be running uh, the kitchen side of Bad Idea, which is a restaurant with a sommelier, Alex Birch. Why did you decide to kind of take that opportunity instead of, you know, maybe opening your own space, you know, being kind of the only owner of your own space kind of thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, that was just conversations with Alex. You know, like we have had such a good working conversation moving up to the point where he asked me to join the team. And it was one of the first questions he asked is, what do you want to do with food? And, you know, there's no way to tell what kind of cuisine um, you're going to cook without a vision of space and looks and feels very similar to what Som can be, or you know, before I even put it out there, you know, I had this almost clear vision of how I saw the food and space and, and the atmosphere. You know, this space kind of fell into it and I was like, this could be a good testing ground. And you know, the dishes won't necessarily be fully Psalm.
0: This is gonna be on the east side of Nashville, right? Like in an old church.
1: Yeah, it's in an old church that was um, destroyed a little bit by the tornado. Uh, it's in the Five Points area of town, and you know it's such a great space. And it's going to be a mixed use building, but we have the ground level.
0: Are you going to be making food to pair with Alex's wine selections, or is he going to be selecting wine to pair with your food, or will be a mix of both?
1: It'll be a mix of both. You know, like Alex has such a great palace. Uh, to wine. The way he wants to run the wine program is so different than anything I've ever seen or even heard of. So I think it's going to be a fun area. Some nights we'll let the food shine a little more and the wine will be the the supporting uh, number or some nights, you know, it'll be about the wine and the food can kind of take a step back.
0: Is it hard to pair wine with Laotian cuisine? Some of those ingredients, I mean, it's spicy, but it's not Szechuan. It's not let your mouth on fire, but there is some heat to it. So is that a challenge or is that something that you're pretty well versed in and don't expect too many difficulties in navigating?
1: No, I think it's going to be extremely difficult. (laughs) La cuisine is such a bold uh, cuisine. You know, there's so many intense flavors, things that are just so polarizing. So, I think it's going to be very tricky to kind of see where the wines fit in.
0: And it's going to be kind of a casual, like elevated cuisine, great wine, but kind of just come as you are kind of dining vibe.
1: Exactly. In Nashville, there are a lot of great restaurants, Audrey, Bastion, that are, you know, fine dining of the scene. And then there are a lot of very casual, humbling, Arnold, Silver Sands. There's nothing quite in between, you know, kind of like the... Here, this is what I am. This is what I'm wearing. I'm looking for somewhere really good to go eat, but I don't really want to make a reservation. There's not really a place like that you can walk into and have a great experience. On level with like
0: Audrey or Bashin,
1: you know, we're hoping that that bad idea can be that space, be like the communal, this is where we gather and it's great food and it's great wine.
0: I read that you were at least thinking of, I don't know if you made a decision on developing like a late night menu, like an after 10 p.m. menu. Is that still something you're going to do?
1: I think so. You know, we're not fully committed on that but you know we also talk about the fact that there's no place for the industry to come in and eat after 10 in nashville that's not burger fries or sandwich you know we talk a lot of opening on days that every other restaurant's closed so that you know people in our industry can experience it as well
0: yeah i mean that model is there i mean you know i think like locust is open like three days a week then there's also this restaurant that i went to out in kind of the Boston area where they would do a late night menu and make like tacos and stuff because they were in the back of a brewery. They would take kind of whatever leftover ingredients that they had from that night's service. They would do two tasty menu dinners and then they would just do like, hey, we have these open bottles of wine, like it's $5 a glass. And then we're throwing together like tacos and burritos and people could just kind of come in and try a bunch of different stuff, you know, kind of casual stuff. So that stuff works. How often do you kind of plan on turning over the menu do you think it'll be seasonal like once a quarter or just kind of stuff will go on the menu as you feel confident with it being ready
1: we'll do a little more of like seasonal rotation you know the menu i don't want it to change too much You know, again this is about the community and- Providing a space that, you know, a place where they can hang out and come and get, you know, what they want. Just there's great restaurants in the world where you can go get the perfect season salad. and keep going back to get the perfect season salad. Hoping there'll be things on the menu like that, something on that level that keep coming back for, you know, building those relationships and then there'll be dishes on there that will change and come with the seasons and be gone, or I'll get
0: bored of them. But are you guys still on track to open next year, roughly the time frame that you wanted to, or have you encountered delays because of supply chains and stuff?
1: I think we're pretty on track right now.
0: Do you think uh, you'll ever move to Montreal?
1: That is a very possibility. Yeah, my uh, Beyonce, her family's from uh, Peru, New York, which is about 30 minutes from the Canadian borderline. And, you know, we always talk about moving back and forth. You know, I think Montreal's been on our list for a while. We visited the city, fell love immediately. It's close to her family, so it's definitely up there for us.
0: How are you with the snow and the cold? I love it. It doesn't bother me. I grew up without it, so
1: it's kind of easy for me now.
0: So you'll be cooking in Nashville for, you know, at least a few more years, probably. Since you've been there, though, I mean, you've spent nine years, 10 years of your career in Nashville. How has kind of the food and restaurant scene evolved since you've, you know, first started there? And is there anything you still think needs to change? Where do you think it's headed?
1: Least and bounds, you know, over when I first started cooking. So when I first started cooking, it was the steakhouses. They were the most prominent restaurants and there weren't really much else. But now there are more local Chefs that are focused on, you know, sustainability and cooking with the seasons and providing nutritious meals, and I think that's great, and I think Nashville's come so far, but it's got so much further to go. The more they'd be convinced them to go to places like Audrey, the continent hall, and we can really start pushing, or not just cuisine, but the city a little, bit, a little bit more forward, you know, and you'll start seeing places like Kisser, which is finally and Lord, Elena's new spot.
0: This next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Rico Torres of Mixley in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, he left behind a question for you. If you weren't a chef, what would you want to be doing?
1: Probably music engineering
0: is that something you mess around with on the side like Pro Tools and stuff like that or
1: no, but you know I love music. I love a deep dive into records and listening to the production side of it all as part of it, but you know really hearing the trends styles styles, the equipment that
0: we were using at the time. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything.
1: With the current changes in the industry regarding neighbors and pay, what are some of the things that they're doing to kind of
0: overcome that gap? This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you could be the executive chef in one restaurant in your city that you've never worked at before, which would it be and why?
1: I would take Khalil's job at uh, Arnold's. Become the mayor of Nashville
0: we got a handful more questions for you here. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast, so nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for listeners. Looking back on your career, who would you say is the biggest influence on it so far? Brian Baxter. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? A Vitamix. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give, a person gets stuck in Nashville at the airport, stuck overnight, flight's canceled.
1: Locust, if you can get a reservation. <laughs> They're kind of jerks, you know, they only open three days
0: a week. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurants, a place you've never been that you want to go to and then also a restaurant you've never eaten at, but you still want to visit one day.
1: Bucket list destination is Japan. Bucket list restaurant will probably be, be the shop of we all
0: Specific part of Japan, like Tokyo or Kyoto, or just... I think somewhere in the mountains. I haven't really
1: gotten too deep into that conversation.
0: Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. Uh, the ampoule system went off
1: i was standing on the line and everything kind of goes off you hear this big <clears throat> everything is dark no power and all of a sudden this green flag starts shooting from those uh the
0: systems food or drink guilty pleasures or anything fast food candy whatever that you know is kind of unhealthy for you but uh, you just can't help yourself fried chicken any and all versions do you have a go-to spot for fried chicken or no
1: uh, it depends on, you know, the uh, accessibility of it all. You know, like if I'm in Nashville, not many great options for fried chicken anymore. You know, it's kind of all saturated in hot chicken. As I've gotten older, I can't really handle the heat anymore. So if I'm in Nashville, probably going to pop on. You can get spicy if you wanted to, but also the regular fried chicken great.
0: Favorite Instagram account you follow? Like that one that you never really skip over. You're always interested to see kind of whatever they're posting. I'm
1: trying to distance myself from social media these days. I'm
0: trying to push
1: myself into what I want to do as opposed to seeing what the trends are and following them.
0: Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, you know, you can kind of point to this dish as almost like your aha moment. You knew you could be a professional chef one day.
1: It actually happened not too long ago. I was having a conversation with Byron, who's the owner of Proper Sake in Nashville. And, you know, we were talking about his process and all the leftovers, the sake leaves, and the kafu, and what can you do with that? Obviously, it is the traditional pickling stuff in it. There's not really much else. I had this idea to turn them into a leadership style noodle for soup. It's kind of just been ever since. This is kind of what Somme is, ingredients, and turning them into our dishes. So now, you know, we make a uh, Galpia soba style noodle with sake
0: leaves. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was. If you were, was there a moment episode scene that always stands out to you about him? If you weren't, was there anybody else who's a you know culinary TV personality, Emeril or Julie Child or somebody that was on TV that you kind of always gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? Yeah,
1: I'm a big uh, Anthony Bourdain fan. I think the episode where he went to Laos, not only you know did he showcase the food, which I think he's always done great, but he, the cultures there that he really highlights, really exciting, powerful, and it's great to see that spotlight.
0: Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything.
1: You can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my personal account is Colby Rossavon, which is just my name. Um, you can follow the Psalm page. That is my, you know, my passion project for everything that I'm doing these days. That's Psalm um, underscore Nashville, or you can find us on Bad Idea Nashville.
0: And then you're doing residency at Fulgur Laundromat in New York City, is it like three months?
1: So yeah, if you're in New York City, come see me. I'll be cooking some dishes from the Bad Idea menus and some dishes from Psalm. And we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm here until
0: March 6th, I believe. Reservations needed for that. How's that all set up? I believe it's reservations only. Should be able to get through it probably either through your account or the laundromat account, probably.
1: To uh, the focus account.
0: I believe they have a resi. The pop up from what I've seen on Instagram and everything, food looks amazing, looks super unique. You know, the concept for bad idea there's not a whole lot of Sommelier-owned restaurants or founded restaurants. You know, it's just not a avenue that's really something that I think a lot of people have pursued in that industry or they've always kind of do a wine shop or wind up working at a winery or just at different restaurants. So when I first read about it, it was super intriguing. The concept just seems, I don't want to say out of the box, but it's just something new and refreshing that's not available in most markets. And I don't think there's anything like that in Nashville, too, as well. So super excited. We're here in Columbus. We're like five hours away. You know, we make it to Nashville every couple of years and kind of overdue for a trip down there. So super excited to, to try that restaurant once it opens. Otherwise, we'll be following along uh, with the pop up in New York. And I don't think we'll get a chance to, to venture out that way. But If we do, you know, I'll hit you up, but uh, if not, you know, look forward to seeing you at bad idea and continuing your career and and, uh, everything that you're kind of working on.
1: Thank you, man. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: A big thanks again to Colby for taking some time uh, out of his morning to jump on the podcast and talk about his career and everything and being flexible with scheduling too as well. Always appreciative when uh, unfortunately sometimes we have to move things around, which is not ideal, but uh, when everybody is able to make accommodations, uh, that's always cool to see because that means they're really super excited about coming on and, and doing the podcast. So again, you can follow Colby on Instagram at Colby Rasavong, just first name, last name, uh, nothing in between or anything like that. You can also follow his pop-up, Psalm, it's at Psalm underscore Nashville. And also the bad idea restaurant account, which will be the restaurant will be opening uh, sometime next year. It's at Bad Idea Nashville. And you can follow us on Instagram, too, as well, at Spoon Mob. Check out our website, spoonmob.com, and make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. I appreciate everybody who's been listening. I hope everybody had a great holiday break, Christmas and Hanukkah and all that stuff, and uh, New Year, too, as well. We got a lot of cool stuff on the way, a lot of cool interviews, different guests, uh, some new stuff that we haven't really explored uh, before too as well. So super excited for everybody to hear it, but um, appreciate everybody listening. Appreciate all the support, uh, feedback, Instagram messages, emails, all that stuff. Uh, It's been a a great year for the podcast, We've grown every month, uh, pretty much. So super excited to see where twenty twenty three takes us. And uh, if you're new, you know, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. And as always, uh, you wind up in a restaurant or wine bar or whatever, somebody that we've had on the podcast, one of their businesses, please mention uh, that you know that you heard about them on the Spoon Mob podcast. It always helps kind of spread the word too, as well, um, and lets those people know that it was worth their time coming on the podcast and that if they ever need to come back, um, you know, we always have an open invitation for them. So until next year, which will be next week, uh, we'll talk to you guys later.